Well, after 41 and a half years, I'm going to today begin my first Lent sermon series. And I want to explain why. Um, I'm doing this series on gospel favorites for the rest of the time. And um, I have no idea when the time is going to end at this point. And therefore, I can't plan it all out in advance like I usually do. And the thought of covering the story of Jesus and not and being cut short and not being able to talk about the end of the story is somewhat unthinkable to me. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take the end and I'm going to insert it into the middle in the form of a Lent series. So we're for, fast forwarding all the way to uh, the, the last week of Christ's life for the next a few weeks. Um, and then uh, after Easter, after March, we'll go back and uh, dive back into the ministry years of our Lord at that time. Um, so our passage today is Matthew 20. Verses 17 to 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, we know this from elsewhere to be a woman named Salome, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them and said, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came to be served, I'm sorry, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life is a ransom for many. So, let's walk through this passage line by line. Yeah, they were going up to Jerusalem. Um, this is the last approach 
Uh, it's probably a week before the crucifixion, probably the Friday or Saturday before the triumphal entry, when they entered into Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus tells them that when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be delivered over to the authorities, the, both the Jewish and the Gentile authorities, and ultimately he's going to be crucified and raised on the third day. So here he is, a week before his death, he's very conscious of the fact that he is about to drink down the cup of God's wrath and give his life as a ransom for many. He's already informed his disciples numerous times of this. He brought it up in chapter 16 and Peter rebuked him for it. He brought it up in 17. And it says that the disciples were deeply grieved. That doesn't mean that they really got it and were very sad about that reality. It means that they were so upset about him talking about this that they didn't want to hear it. They were upset that he would even bring it up. Like if someone was, uh, you know, on the morning of their wedding day saying, he's not going to show up. I just know he's not going to show up. As if, you know, who, someone who doesn't really have any idea about what's going to happen. But, of course, Jesus really knew what was going to happen. He, didn't, he wasn't saying, I'm going to be killed when I get to Jerusalem, as if it was just some, some foreboding thought of a possibility that could happen. But it was a prediction and a, based on his knowledge of exactly what was going to happen. But they didn't want to hear it. And now here for the third time, he tells them that uh, he's going to be crucified. Luke 18 at this point tells us, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said, even though he said it repeatedly. Because of this, they weren't prepared for the crucifixion, of course. They acted as if they'd never heard about it before when it happened. Well, in right after Jesus tells them about this, for some reason, the mother of James and John, Salome, thinks this is the right time to make her bold move. She brings her two sons and she kneels before Jesus. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit on your right and your left in your kingdom. Now, this is not just an ordinary, casual request. She's obviously been thinking about this a long time and preparing for it and looking for the right time. She falls down on her knees before Jesus and makes her petition. Her petition for position. Put my boys in the highest place, O Lord. Here Jesus is about to face something so daunting that even he will be shaken and deeply distressed to the point of sweating blood, and yet his followers are completely oblivious. It reminds me of the four Thomas Cole paintings that we have down in room five. If you've never really looked at those, they're in the National Gallery of Art too, which is 
you know, they're much bigger, of course, but those paintings show the four different stages of life. And the painting which depicts the stage of youth Envision, here's the boat that they're traveling through life and here he is as a young person on the boat looking down the river and off beyond the river is a celestial city painted on the sky and he sees it and he's filled with hope about this glorious life that he's got. But what he can't see from his vantage point is that farther down the river it takes a severe turn to the right and goes through rapids, frightful rapids, before it gets to the destination. And that's like this, this like the mother, this like Salome here. You know, she he talks about the the uh, the end things, and she can't see the hard part of it. She just sees, okay, he's going to be setting up his kingdom, and I want my boys there at his right and his left. Jesus answers. You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when uh, Moses and Elijah showed up and Peter comes up with this great idea. Let's build, let me build three tents so that you all can stay here. And it says, but he didn't know what he was talking about. Then that's a similar situation. Here he's, you know, in the sea. It's hard to fault Peter. He's, he's, he's not uh, having evil thoughts. It's just that he has no idea what he's talking about. And he just doesn't grasp the situation. And uh, so it says that. And then, um, you know, I think of this and how very patient the congregation has been with me over the years when I have said stupid things without really realizing what I was saying or what was going on. When we know what we're doing and still do the wrong thing, then God deals with us more severely. Like in James 4.17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. But so often people act in ignorance. They really don't know what they're doing. And when people don't know what they're doing, God is more patient. Thus he prayed, Jesus prayed on the cross in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They they know not what they do. And when people really don't know. Now Salome had a vague knowledge, of course, of a glorious day to come. But she had no concept of the road that would have to be traveled to get there. After Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Of course, here he's addressing James and John, her sons. Of course, the cup he's talking about is the cup of his own death, pouring out his life for others. Now, are the disciples supposed to drink his cup? Well, in a sense, yes. Not as the substitute for mankind, not bearing the wrath of God. However, they're going to be called upon to lay down their lives for the sake of others. And so Jesus asked them, are you able to bear the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, we are able. 
Now the text doesn't specifically tell us at this point that Jesus rolled his eyes. But I think it's likely that he did, at least inside, when they said, we're able. It's not just Salome who doesn't know what she's talking about. It's her sons too. They didn't get it either. They have no idea, really, what they've gotten themselves into. How hard it's going to be. It reminds me a little bit of how some young people are when they get married. They take the wedding vows in the same casual spirit. Yes, I do. My dear wife and I did it ourselves. We were serious about the commitment we were making. As serious as we could be at that moment in our lives, but we really had no idea what it was going to mean. Probably some of you feel the same way. Forsaking all others, I do now promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife in plenty and in want and joy and in sorrow and sickness and in health for better or for worse as long as we both shall live. But do they really know how hard it is to be a loving and faithful spouse when your spouse seems to be doing you more harm than good? When your spouse is sick, weak, and needy, when your spouse is depressed, you know how hard it is to forsake all others and be faithful when your spouse is preoccupied and overwhelmed and unfriendly and not what they used to be? Do you know how hard it is to be a loving wife when your husband fails in his career and you're afraid of financial disaster or when it seems clear to you that you know what needs to happen better than he does or when he seems to be acting out of pride or self-interest and not out of godly concern for the good of the family And yet we all stood there saying the words but hardly having any ability to grasp their weight or understand how hard it was going to be to fulfill those words. We are able. Just like James and John. But in all their naivete, James and John were willing. They were willing to say yes to God. Oh, that we would wake up each morning with an understanding of how desperately we need God's help that day. And yet, even so, God is so patient with us. Jesus responds, You will drink my cup. In spite of the fact that you don't know what you're talking about, in spite of the fact that you foolishly think you are up to this calling, you will indeed drink this cup. Though it will be overwhelmingly heavy, you will take it up and drink it. James was the first disciple to be martyred. Not more than a few years after this was said, 
killed by Herod's sword in Acts 12.2. I wonder if he thought about these words of his Lord as he sat in prison waiting to be killed by the sword for his testimony for Jesus. You will drink my cup, James. As an old man, his brother John was the last of the twelve to die, martyred for the faith like the rest. You will drink my cup, Jesus said, but to sit at my right hand and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. There, he acknowledged the fact that there is a kingdom, that there are positions of relative honor there in the kingdom. Jesus had taught this to them all through the, the gospel. In the Sermon on the Mount, where he referred to the least in the kingdom of heaven and the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then again, Matthew 11, 11 and Matthew 18, 4, 1 to 4. We see that the disciples picked up on some of the things Jesus said eagerly. But other stuff, like the cross, they didn't get it, even though he repeated it over and over again. I think we're the same way sometimes. Some stuff we latch onto, other stuff is like water off a duck's back. It goes in one ear and out the other. Lord, help us. Now, hearing that these two men had come to Jesus and asked for this special favor, the other ten disciples were indignant with these two. This is not surprising. What is surprising, though, in this is who was not indignant toward James and John. Jesus was not indignant toward them. The eyes that were perfectly righteous, the man who had never departed from the way of God, was not outraged at James and John. Only the other sinners were outraged. Only the ones who also coveted the honor of being given those important positions. Only the ones who themselves struggled with pride were outraged. The ones who had no reason and no right to become indignant did become indignant. And the one who had every reason and every right to become indignant did not become indignant. This tells us something about our Lord's loving patience with us and our human outrage. And I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that we were outraged in this kind of way uh, often. When we shouldn't, when Christ wasn't. There's certainly a time and place for indignation and outrage. But they easily can be based not on righteousness, but on self-righteousness. Not on love, but on pride. These, after all, are Jesus' friends. His followers who have given up their lives for him. And are ready though they don't understand what it means to give their very lives for him. 
And Salome is one of the three women who is said to be at the cross when all the others had scattered. He does not condemn or reject them because of a foolish request. Jesus often rebuked his disciples. But the only time, at least I can think of in my mind, when he actually got indignant with them is in Mark 10.14 when they rebuked the women who were bringing their children to Jesus. Even though their request here was misguided, it reflected belief in Christ's kingdom and a desire to do everything they could to serve it and serve Christ. However, Jesus also discerns a sinful desire to exercise authority in their request. And in the indignation of the other apostles. So he lovingly comments on that. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. There is a way of the world, a way of living, that believers must not conform to. With power there comes the temptation to use power for self-interest. To oppress rather than to serve. That's the way of the flesh. It thinks of self and of praise and of position. It wants to make sure that it gets all it has a right to. And that no one gets what belongs to me. Christ's followers, though, must be different. Believers who are given positions of authority must remember that there is an ultimate authority over them. A king of kings, a father of fathers, a lord of lords, who gives orders to kings and fathers and bosses. How easy it is for those in authority to forget that they themselves are under authority. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing you also have a master in heaven. Colossians 4.1 It's easy to resort often to using weapons of authority when you're in a position of authority. But Jesus calls us to serve instead. To serve the people he puts in our lives, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, in the church, even in the marketplace. It means showing thoughtfulness, taking an interest in others, being attentive to others' needs. It means serving the people under us, even though that is so contrary to our flesh. And Then finally Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Instead of remaining in his position as God in heaven, Jesus came. He became a man and lived on the earth 
surrendering the glory which he had with the Father before the world began. He voluntarily entered into our humanity and into its curse. You want to see greatness? This is the greatest act ever performed. Jesus Christ became man and gave his life as a ransom for sinners. He came not to be served, but to serve. Now in one sense, we're supposed to serve Christ. Serve the Lord with gladness. But in another sense, we never serve Christ. He always serves us. Acts 17, the Lord who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We do not meet God's needs. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. All the other so-called gods make man work for them. Instead, God comes to work and does the work himself. The gospel is not a help-wanted ad. It's a help-available ad. God is not looking for people to work for him but people in whom he can work. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless before him. 2 Chronicles 16.9 Think about the way he spent himself for others. Healing all who needed healing. Dealing with needy and often difficult people. He tangled with demons. He grappled with diseases. He contended with handicaps. He went head to head with death. Patiently teaching, lovingly comforting, praising those who believed. He courageously served the self-righteous by rebuking their arrogance. He defended the weak by reproving the high and mighty. In order to serve mankind, he endured all ordinary human discomforts, limitations, and sufferings. He endured 40 days without food, the torments of the devil himself, and much human ridicule. And yet there was no trace of resistance or reluctance or weariness in his service. Even when his days stretched from early morning until late at night, Confronting, confronted with more and more need every place he went, it seemed. He did not resent it even when the crowds interrupted his moments of solitude, but responded always with grace and willingness. He served the poor, he served women, he served sinners, he served Gentiles, as well as serving his own oft-bumbling disciples. It was probably just a few days after this that he took his basin and a towel and washed his disciples' feet and said, as I've served you, so you must serve one another. And the one time he said no to a request for help was only because there were other cities that needed him even more.
even on the cross he didn't think of himself while he was enduring the unspeakable agony of the weight of the whole world's sin but he spoke words of mercy and assurance to the thief who died at his side the son of man came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many this is what the gospel is all about this is what Christ is all about this is what Christianity is about, all about. This is what the church of Christ is all about. The world thinks about rank and status. It thinks about getting ahead. But Jesus comes from the highest rank and from the most wealth and from the greatest intelligence. And he says greatness does not depend upon wealth or birth or intelligence or accomplishment or position. And he gives up his life for people who are lowly and needy and poor and of little worldly significance and then he calls them to forsake the way the world thinks and to follow him in the path of humility and service and yet in many ways we don't get it we don't realize the heaviness of what's happening in our lives and who he is and what he's called us to we don't realize the import of what he's doing in the world. Often there's no fear and trembling because we don't see Christ in our lives. And now every moment of our lives has eternal significance. And we're indignant when someone cuts in front of us in traffic. I have many regrets that I was so often indignant with, as a father with my children instead of being patient because they didn't know what they were doing my problem was that I didn't realize how patient the Lord was being with me at the very time reading passages like this where we see the patience of the Lord with his disciples and Christ's reliance upon his own example to show them how to live these are convicting to me I hope they're convicting to you too and inspiring and they also make me thankful that he is still so patient with me now even when I often don't still know what I'm doing let's pray Heavenly Father you are such a good father to us and we thank you and we thank you for the gift of your son and for the life that he lived and how it is so inspiring and so convicting we thank you especially that he died upon the cross that our, our sins and our failings and our shortcomings might be covered by his blood and now dear Lord we thank you that we can celebrate his atoning work as we come to the table of our Lord Oh Lord, we celebrate his forgiveness. We celebrate his patience. We celebrate his heart of love toward us, even when we fail. Please meet us here at this table, O oh Lord. For we need you. We need him, your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.